text of emphasis today comes from the Apocalypse, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. It says this, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing water and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who didn't defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Let's pray. God, through your word, help us today to understand more about you and more about ourselves and each other. Amen. Well, we uh, are in the midst of our fall sermon series, Revelation and Apocalypse of apocalyptic proportions. I'm having a good time. I don't know about you guys. I'm trying to have a little fun with uh, Revelation. If you want to get caught up with previous teachings, you can go to watch.adventhope.org. Well, again, we've had a good time. We had uh, John Pauline here a couple of weeks ago, one of Adventism's uh, scholars in the book of Revelation. And we've got more guests coming soon which you can always get caught up again at watch.avonhope.org. Well, last week we looked at Revelation chapter 7. We're skipping, we're jumping uh, to 14 today. With that said, a couple of uh, highlights of 8 through 13. You can go read them on your own later. Uh, first of all, there's some pretty downright frightening descriptions in uh, chapters 8 through 13. A lot of turmoil on the planet. Uh, highlighted by the description of the great dragon and two beasts in Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 13. Uh, it's really a disconcerting uh, description of world affairs. Bible students have uh, identified this great dragon as uh, God's antagonist, the, uh, the one known as Satan. And the two beasts as social, religious, political powers that work together in support of the agenda of the uh, dragon. So it's kind of disturbing to think that uh, God's enemy is working behind the scenes in world affairs in a very particular way to create havoc. With that said, uh, as somewhat of an illustration, yesterday or or last evening apparently uh, hackers took down a large swath of of the internet. I know that you were you know, probably meditating all Sabbath evening and you didn't realize that your internet was broken. Um, Sabbath joke. Thank you for picking up on that. 
but uh, apparently hackers broke broke the internet at some level last night. A widespread uh, uh, a breakage. A lot of major sites went down. It was a DDoS attack for those of you who are uh, programmers, and there's some concern about how much damage this has done and what could happen in the future. Maybe a nice uh, illustration of what uh, we're told has been happening behind the scenes for some time, that uh, God's antagonist has been hacking the system, if you will, uh, maliciously hacking his creation. And so the scary beasts and the meddling dragon uh, dominate the narrative of Revelation chapter 8 through 13. So with this in mind, when we get to Revelation chapter uh, 14, there's uh, good news, there's encouragement. Because John, that, uh, that old apostle who is now a prisoner on the island of Patmos and who is seeing this uh, dramatic scene, he says in verse 1, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Well, by now we've established the fact that the, the lamb uh, is a representation of Jesus himself, uh, certainly in the book of uh, Revelation, but all throughout the Bible, the idea of the lamb who was slain represents Jesus. And so we see Jesus here on Mount Zion. Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion in the Psalms and the prophets of, Old Testament, of the Old Testament was a representation of the center of God's rule. It's kind of like the White House. If you were to say the White House, you would think that's the center of, of power for the American government or the American uh, presidency. So if you were to say Mount Zion, that would indicate the center of uh, rule for planet Earth. And so Jesus is on a Mount Zion. This is good news, especially after all the bad news that we've heard from 8 through 13 of beasts and dragons and so on. God is on Mount Zion. Jesus is on Mount Zion. He's surrounded by 144,000. Again, we talked about this group uh, last week when we looked at Revelation chapter uh, 7, a stellar group of people, apparently. Uh, there's some indication that uh, this is supposed to be representative of a, an army, you know, uh, organized by 12,000, so here we have Jesus in the center of his, his power at Mount Zion. He's got this, this pacifist army, if you will, around him because they have not done any of the fighting. It's God who's done all the fighting for them. And they have uh, the name of the Father on their uh, foreheads. And this contrasts with the mark that is put on those who have not embraced a relationship with Jesus earlier on in the story, and so this name is most likely the tetragrammaton, the uh, the the symbol, the four uh, Hebrew letters that symbolize God's name. If you remember when uh, when Moses uh, had his interaction with God at the burning bush, and he asked, "What's your name?" and God says, "I am that I am." This is the uh, the the verbal version of the these four letters, the tetragrammaton, and so. On their foreheads, they have this Yahweh, this, these, this symbol for the Father and the Son. This is kind of their, their sign of allegiance, if you will. Verse 3 says that they sing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures. 
and that no one else could learn this uh, special uh, song. This song is uh, reminiscent of the song that uh, the people of Israel sang after they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. If you remember that story, they, uh, they come out of Egypt. The Egyptian, Egyptian troops are chasing them. They get to the Red Sea. There's nowhere to go. God opens the Red Sea. They march through. The Egyptian army chases them, and God releases the water, and the army is drowned, and they, they sing a song. They sing a new song. Revelation chapter 15 affirms this uh, link. And we read John again talking about this group of people, the 144,000. He said, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire standing before the sea. Remember that we've said that Revelation is full of nostalgic references to the past. This is certainly one of those. Again, recalling the experience of the Israelites of old. I looked I saw a sea of glass mixed with fire standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and his image were standing there. They held harps that God had given them and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the land. Here are the words to the song. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. We decided earlier that Nick and Aaron are going to put this, uh, this song to, uh, to, to a melody, right? Is Aaron here? We should just do a little shout out to Aaron today. He went to the restroom. Aaron uh, produced what has become an internet sensation, a, a, a great parody, maybe the best parody I've seen so far in the election uh, season of uh, one of the debates. Um, if you want to, apparently he collaborated with Weird Al Yankovic, so our pianist today collaborating with Weird Al uh, to create a great, has anybody seen it yet? Just Google Weird Al and apparently you'll get there to this. So I'm hoping that it won't be a parody, but Nick and Aaron can put the uh, song of Revelation chapter 15 to melody. Wouldn't that be fun? You guys, everybody doing okay? You guys with me today? All right, we're trying to have fun here. Um, are you having fun? All right. That was a little unsure, but we're just going to keep marching on. <laughs> All right, so this 144,000, they have this, this, this unique song that only they can sing because only they've been through the experience that they had. So despite all of the frightening scenes that have come before in a Revelation, there's good news. God is in his, in his place of earthly power, and he's got this... Uh, army, if you will, around him. Uh, but this description of this army leaves uh, some questions, at least for me. Who are these uh, people? I mean, what, uh, what kind of person could live up to the attributes that are articulated here about this 144,000? Are these uh, morally superior super beings? Uh, superhumans, maybe. Listen again to the description of this group that is surrounding Jesus. In verse 4, it says, These are those who uh, did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were 
uh, purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So apparently this group is virginal. Uh, They follow Jesus wherever he goes. And they don't tell any lies. They're blameless. Uh, That's a, a pretty high set of requirements. How many of you here could pass the test for the uh, 144,000? You don't have to raise your hands. No, no, I see people already. (laughs) No need to to respond to that. That was rhetorical, but thank you for those who did. Um, That's a pretty high set of prerequisites. Uh, I've I've heard some Bible students say this group is a very special group of people. They're God's uh, special forces. Uh, The implication is that indeed these are people who are somehow kind of morally superior. They're, they're, They're the best of God's best, if you will. But is this how it really works? Does God have the best of the the best? Does he really have uh, special forces, those who have acted in a, in a, a particularly moral way? Well, let's consider this group and the attributes in a little more detail. Uh, there are three distinct attributes that are, are listed here, um, or at least three that are related to, to their work. Um, in verse 4, we find this description, that they did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. Now, on first reading, this sounds a little bit... Uh, certainly gender-specific, if not misogynistic. Um, But maybe that understanding of this group described as an army can help us out here about why this issue of of women is, or defiling oneself with women is of particular interest. First of all, uh, if you were in the army in the first century, you were a man. That's just how it worked in the first century. And then there was a code among soldiers that was uh, very clear that if you were in service, you were to refrain from sexual relations. You were uh, celibate. If you remember uh, back when uh, uh, David and his, and his uh, 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 general were in dialogue with each other, and general uh, comes home, and David is hoping that he will uh, sleep with his wife, but general is like, uh, no. I, I'm going to refrain from that. That would be wrong for me to do. So there was this code of conduct that you, you didn't defile yourself. When you were about the business of war, you were about the business of war. And while this is a pacifist army, apparently these uh, same implications are true. So these, these, this group is remaining uh, celibate. So this has got this war-like uh, element to it. Uh, there's another element uh, to this idea of this group being uh, celibate. Most translations, in fact, I would guess that your translation does not translate it as, the, as is translated in the version that I, I read. Mine says, don't defile themselves, or did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves uh, pure. Your version probably says that they uh, were virgins, that they were virgins, uh, which is pretty interesting. Renko Stefanovich, in his magnum opus, his uh, commentary in the book of Revelation, says this about this idea of 
them being virginal. He says, the term uh, virgin, with, which is parthenos in the original Greek, is often used metaphorically in the Bible signifying fidelity to God. In the New Testament, the word is used with reference to the church. Paul was eager to present the Christians in Corinth as a pure version to Christ. In Matthew chapter 25, God's people awaiting the second coming are described as uh, ten virgins. And so uh, Stefanovich is making the case that, again, this idea of being virginal is, is um, metaphoric. The main idea here is that these people were pure in the sense that they were faithful to Jesus. They didn't cheat on Jesus. This is the idea that is being presented here. Just as a, as a side note, there's, I would say, like a small group of people who look at this number of 144,000 and say, that, you know, this is a literal number. There's actually 144,000 uh, people that are part of this in the end. But almost no one, no Bible student that I'm aware of, looks at this idea of being virginal as not being metaphoric. Because, again, it would disqualify most Bible scholars. So you don't want to get, it must be metaphoric then. Um, the idea, again, is purity. These, this group is faithful to Jesus. They're not going to cheat on Jesus. So this is attribute number one. Attribute number two is that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. David Ayun, who is a, another Bible commentary from the University of Notre Dame, he says this, a following Christ is clearly a metaphor for martyrdom. That concept of following Christ uh, was a concept that was directly related to being willing to be a martyr. If you remember in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, which says that uh, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And that's not the only place that Jesus indicates that if a, a, a person is really interested in being a disciple, that it may lead to uh, martyrdom. And so, again, this attribute of this group, this 144,000, that they're, they're going to be pure, they're going to be uh, righteous, but they're also going to be willing to give up everything, including their own lives if necessary. And then finally, in verse 5, it says about this group that no lie was found in their mouths. They were blameless. They were blameless. Again, how many are at this point qualifying for this group of 144,000? Have you ever been uh, dishonest? Have you ever been dishonest in uh, your workplace? Have you ever been dishonest in a relationship? Sorry, 144,000 not for you. This is a, apparently a very exclusive group of people. And so the attributes of membership in the 144,000 are apparently very high. So this is a little bit of a bummer. I mean, after all of the, the good news that Jesus is uh, <laughs> in Mount Zion and he's in the, 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 the control center for the world and the, the beast and the, the dragon are, are in trouble and we had hope. The bad news is, apparently, this group of people are morally superior. And so that leaves us with uh, another question for today. 
does anyone innately qualify? I mean, who can, who can live up to these attributes? Are, are there a group of people who are morally superior, who are, are blameless and pure and righteous, and who are willing to give up everything and, and follow Jesus? Who are those people? The Apostle uh, Paul, responding maybe not directly to at least this question, let's say, if not to the assertion of the attributes of the 144,000 in Romans chapter uh, 3, says this. Um, As it is written, he says, he's he's writing in his letter to, to Rome, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've all together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Our throats are open graves, tongues that practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they don't know. There's no fear of God before the eyes. This is the, the, the diagnosis of the human condition, the innate human condition. So Paul is pretty clear. Actually, there's no one who innately qualifies as being uh, righteous or pure or blameless or able and capable to follow Jesus wherever he goes. There's nobody innately, morally Superior. It just doesn't exist. So what hope do we have? Who are these people? Where do they come from? John says that those who stand with Jesus, those who are part of this 144,000, are pure or righteous. In Psalm chapter 32, verse 1, we read this. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there's no deceit. In Galatians chapter 5, in verses 22 and 23, uh, Paul, again, writes this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, and peace, and forbearance, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Faithfulness is an attribute that comes from the Spirit. The implication here is pretty clear. It's Jesus who makes a person righteous. There's no one who is innately righteous, innately pure. If God was uh, waiting for a group of people who were innately pure, he'd be waiting indefinitely. That group doesn't exist. And so he makes people pure and righteous. This is the implication of Psalm 32 in Galatians chapter 5. John says that those who stand with Jesus, those who are part of this 144,000, they follow Jesus wherever he goes. How does one become willing to follow Jesus even if it means sacrifice, even sacrifice of their own lives? In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, we read this. As for you, 
you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we are, we're dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you've been saved. Again, the implication is clear that, that, that when God does his work in a person, his resurrection work, that transforms the way a person views the world. And when you recognize that you were already dead, and your life is rooted in what God has done through Jesus, Being willing to follow him wherever he goes doesn't seem so overwhelming. In John chapter 11, we read that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this? In Jesus... We don't have to have a fear of death. Once God has done his work in a person and transforms their, uh, their, their character, he can transform that fear so that a person is able to follow wherever he goes and whatever that means for their life. Finally, John says about those who stand with Jesus, about this group, this 144,000, that no lie was found in their mouths, that they are blameless. <laughs> who, can, who can live up to these requirements? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, we read, He will also keep you firm, firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Jesus, God is able to make anyone blameless. The implication, I hope, is clear. And if not, then we turn to our last text today, found in Ephesians chapter 2 again. And it says this, For it's by grace that you've been saved uh, through faith. This is not from yourselves. You aren't innately capable of living up to the attributes that God has articulated for those uh, people who are part of the 144,000. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In Jesus, the average, ordinary, broken, hurting, fearful person can be transformed and changed. 
This is the good news of the gospel. There aren't special people who are superpowered morally to do all the right things and that somehow they're going to be a part of the, the strike force at the end. Those people don't exist because we're all broken. We're all hurting. We're all sinful. We're not blameless. We're full of things that we can be blamed for. But in Jesus, he can take the average, ordinary person and make them into something new, a new creation. We don't have to be innately uh, perfect. In fact, it, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> There's no one, Paul says. This is the good news of the gospel. It's not just for the select group of people. You know, sometimes, especially in the church, we get real excited about being extraordinary, about being uh, unusual, about being a special. And so we compare ourselves to other people. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been to Yankee Stadium on promotion day? You know promotion day? They do it at the end of the year. Levi and Jude and I were there last year. And we walked into Yankee Stadium and they gave us a gift when we walked in. It was a really nice bobble head. The head bobbled. You know what I did not think to myself? Man, I'm special. <laughs> that they gave me this gift when I came in. I am so, they must have just saw something in me and been like, that guy needs a bobblehead for his specialness. You know who got that bobblehead? Everyone. If you had a ticket and you walked into that stadium, you got a bobblehead. That's how it works. This is the gospel. It's available for everyone. There aren't special people out there, super moral people who God is waiting to give special gifts to. Everyone gets a gift. This leaves us with one last question. How? How do we get this? How do we, how do we, how do we become this kind of people? How do we experience this kind of transformation? If the promise is that the average ordinary person can receive the gift of God's grace working in them, how do we, how do we get this? Well, Jesus answers this a, a number of times, and it starts with one very simple thing. Believe. Believe. Believe that God is able and capable of doing what he's promised to do. Now, I know that that sounds simple, but that's Jesus himself. Everything starts with believing that he is capable of doing what he's promised to do. If I'm going to get the bobblehead... All I need to do is believe that walking through that door is going to do it. When we embrace God's work on our behalf, God is capable of doing for us what we can't do for ourselves to start working and doing his transformative thing in our experience. And that all starts with us embracing. And embracing starts with our believing. We have a, a group that 
was meeting in the afternoons here on, on uh, Sabbath, and uh, we were just talking and discussing about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and so we started uh, implementing this uh, confession. Confession. And it goes something like this. We've done it here before as a congregation, too. I believe in the power of the resurrection, and I want the Holy Spirit to work within me. Now, you don't have to restate that confession. But Jesus is clear. Confessing faith, however simple it might be, is the starting point for God to be able to do his work in you. What does it take to be a part of the 144,000? Are these people morally superior? Are they innately superior somehow? The gospel is clear. No. God does his work in the average, in the ordinary, in the broken. And him doing his work in us starts with us confessing faith, embracing his work on our behalf. And so if you're here today and you are uh, scared of the beasts in this world, maybe your career feels very beastly right now. Maybe you're in a beastly relationship. Maybe your finances feel really, really beastly. And you're unsure of your capability on your own to become the kind of person that you want to be and that God wants to be. And so you're feeling inadequate. Take heart in the good news of Revelation chapter 14. God can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. God is the victorious one. God is the one who's hard at work. You are God's handiwork when you embrace his work in you. The emphasis is on Jesus. What he has done, what he's going to do, and what he's already done in you. As we embrace this, we can be transformed and changed and stand with Jesus on that day when all things are made new. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news in the apocalypse. And I pray now on behalf of each of us today that we believe in the power of the resurrection and we want the Holy Spirit to work within us. In Jesus' name. Amen.